This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Lost in the media circus, the Amazon, lungs of the world, is in last stage crisis. It is boiling in record-smashing heat, drought, and fire. We visit the last stand with Rhett Butler, founder and CEO of independent media hub Manga Bay. Does it seem more stormy where you live? Senior scientist Aigu Dai confirms the atmosphere has been destabilized and it is expected to get more wild as warming continues. I repeat, the atmosphere has been destabilized. The show wraps with a few minutes with Dr. Douglas Scheel in Norway. Can trees make their own weather? I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShop. The Amazon, lungs of the planet, are baking with extended record heat. Wet rainforests are drying out. Rivers are the highways and lifeblood of the Amazon people. But now rivers shrunk to small streams of toxic water. This is a big, barely reported emergency. The very best reporting comes through the award-winning non-profit media group Manga Bay. The founder and CEO is Rhett Butler. Rhett started out on his own, posting thousands of environmental articles and photos. Now Monka Bay has more than 90 staff across five bureaus and a network of about a 1,000 correspondents. In 80 countries, it's big. Rhett Butler, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. According to Al Jazeera, nine heat waves have hit Brazil since the beginning of 2023, with the heat index in Rio de Janeiro soaring to almost 60 degrees Celsius at one point, 140 degrees Fahrenheit in November. Talk to us about the extreme heat cooking the Amazon. Yeah, so the Amazon is experiencing a similar trend. Uh, so it's a combination of both heat and drought. And so those two things together uh, are pretty bad for the rainforest. There's then this uh, big jump in fires. So you have the heat, which, you know, dries out the forest, and then you have lack of rainfall, which further exacerbates conditions. And so these fires that are traditionally set or well, set for land clearing will then burn into forests and have a very significant impact on the health of the forest. The types of fires that are burning are these sub-canopy fires, so they're not sort of like these giant forest fires you'd see in the U.S. They'll often just burn the leaf litter, but what that does is it actually will kill the forest in the long term, so it's a very detrimental impact. And then the lack of rainfall is also causing the rivers to run dry, so it's stranding communities, uh, it's killing wildlife. There was a, a, a news story about uh, a large number of dolphins uh, basically getting baked to death in, in a lake in the Amazon from high temperatures. This is what it looks like in the Amazon. It's a very, very detrimental to the ecosystem and the people there. Yeah, according to longtime Amazon watcher Philip Fearnside, the city of Manaus has the lowest water levels in 121 years of river records. And Amazonians are at a loss. Their food fish are gone. The remaining river water makes anyone sick. And the stunning thing is, Brett, Consumer economies far away in the north kind of helped do this. We burned the fossil fuels and stripped life until the overheated drought arrives in the Amazon. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, none of this is a surprise. The researchers and the mod and their models have been forecasting this sort of scenario for, I mean, since the 1990s, really. And it's just been getting worse every cycle. So every few years we see the same thing happen, and it just gets worse and worse. So, um 
really no surprises to the the researchers who study these things. Does the forest manage to recover in between these boats? I mean, so that's an interesting question. So in some places it can recover, but normally the trend is towards degradation. So especially if there is fire that burns, so the fire will greatly weaken the forest and typically lead to die-off. So generally the, the progressive trend across much of the Amazon is towards a drier ecosystem. And so the big, the big fear is that large sections of the Amazon rainforest, uh, especially in the south and the, and the east, could tip towards this drier, savanna-like ecosystem. And so once that happens, it has major implications for carbon storage, for rain, you know, precipitation patterns across the South American continent. And so that's kind of the great fear. So recovery is possible, but we're, that's not the trend we're seeing. We're, we're seeing the situation, situation get worse and worse. Well, there is some good news. A post-January 8th that Yale 360 says forest loss in the Brazilian Amazon was down 50% a year-on-year in 2023, according to government figures. Why is that, and is it enough to counterbalance these climate-driven changes? It is a very positive sign. So uh, the official numbers showed a 22% decline in 2023 versus 2022. The alert-based data is showing a larger decline for the full 2023 year. We'll know in a few months what the extent of that is, but you know it looks very positive. This is largely the consequence of a new political regime in, in Brazil. So the previous president was Jair Bolsonaro, who was, I would say most environmentalists and scientists would say that he was no friend of the forest. So his greatly reduced uh, protections for the Amazon, reduced law enforcement, one could argue encouraged deforestation. So he lost the election last year and was replaced by Lula, who uh, in his first two terms as president oversaw this huge reduction in deforestation in the mid-2000s through the early 2010s. And so he came in, uh, part of his campaign was that he was going to you know, protect the Amazon and stop this, this rise in deforestation. And so once he, once he entered office in January 2023, he immediately started to reinstate those programs to reduce deforestation and enforce environmental laws and rally international support for protecting the Amazon. And so if you look at the month-to-month deforestation, there was this huge drop right after he came into office, and it just continued. So there's pretty good evidence to suggest that this, this political change has had this major implications for the rate of deforestation in the Amazon. That said, it's not nearly enough to sort of reverse these these longer-term trends. We'd need to see a much greater reduction in deforestation over a longer period of time to, I think, feel really optimistic about what's happening uh, because the, the rate of change and the scale of change that's happening uh, across the Amazon Basin from the drying trends are, are pretty negative. So we're going to have to both reduce deforestation but also um, address the broader issue of climate change to ensure that there's an Amazon you know, 20, 30 years in the future that we still recognize. We have rainforests in British Columbia along the coast that have been, they haven't burned for over a thousand years because they're so wet. Why are there major fires in the formerly wet Brazilian and Ecuadorian and, and the whole Amazon rainforest? Well, so there's a couple things going on. So one is there's a lot of forest degradation. If you have an intact rainforest, you know, that's, that's large in extent, um, those interior areas are pretty protected from fire. But if you cut those forest blocks into smaller fragments, 
you have more points of entry for both deforestation but also things like wind and the wind will cause more tree falls and so the more trees falls you have the more disturbance you have and so that could dry out what's normally a very humid environment and so if you couple that with drought so lack of rainfall and then the fires that are being set for land clearing you get conditions that can lead to fires spreading into these normally wet forests that would not burn and so that's exactly what's happened, uh, I mean, especially in the Brazilian Amazon, is these small agricultural fires will then burn into these forest areas, and because the leaf litter is dry, they will burn vast areas that you may not, may not be obvious if you're looking at a satellite or uh, a satellite imagery or something like that, but it's, it's having these real effects on the ecosystem. And so once that forest litter burns, there's a much higher likelihood of that forest dying off in the future. A lot of these you know, rainforest trees are not ad, uh, adapted to be able to survive fire. So they may survive for a few years, but they're, they're basically compromised. And so, uh, again, the, the likelihood of them falling down in the future um, is much higher than if they had not been affected by the fire. Well, the European Joint Research Center published a study in December titled Drought in the Amazon Basin, November 2023. They also point to El Nino as a driver of warmer and drier times there. Brett, how do you balance El Nino and climate change in this Amazon emergency? Well, I mean, so, yeah, El Nino is definitely a factor as well. And so you tend to see pretty bad droughts in El Nino years uh, in the Amazon. And so um, that's what we had this past year. El Nino is a cyclical thing that affects the Amazon, but then you have kind of this, this baseline of climate change, which is generally rising temperatures and exacerbating the, the drought and kind of flood cycle. And so when you combine those two things, the, the trend is negative, but it's greatly exacerbated in those El Nino years. They're both related and very concerning, but um, anytime you have an El Nino, you worry about fires in the Amazon and then fires in Indonesia. So do you think the current extremes in the Amazon are a one-off with El Nino, or is this uh, an almost unlivable normal developing as the years go by? Well, the trend is definitely drying, so it's not a one-off. Uh, it tends to be worse, it, worse in the, um, the arc of deforestation, so the southern Amazon and the eastern Amazon. So those are you know, naturally the drier parts of the Amazon, but they're, they're suffering the effects of, of El Ninos and, and climate change much more than, than the western Amazon. So those are the regions that scientists are really concerned about tipping towards a drier ecosystem. And so there's already quite a bit of evidence of these kind of dry forest transition trees species that are appearing in these forests now. So there's this community is already shifting. So that is a concerning trend if you're worried about the rainforest ecosystem transitioning towards a different, drier type of ecosystem. Also, Amazing Amazon News, a paper in science uh, titled Discovered in the Upper Amazon, 2,500-year-old landscape providing evidence for early urbanism in the region. They found 6,000 platforms and plaza structures connected by footpaths, straight roads, and extensive agriculture, all this in the Ecuadorian Amazon starting at the time of Homer and the ancient Greeks. Isn't that exciting? But we don't even know what we're losing, really, as we lose it. Yeah, I mean, so certainly. So there's been, I would say in the last 20 years, maybe even 15 years, there's been a lot of these discoveries around these metropolises that existed in the Amazon, you know, pre-Columbian. And so there's 
you know, the, the Amazon diversity is probably a product of, you know, these societies that were in the region. And so, especially along major rivers, there were very substantial settlements and amazing cultures that, that were built around this ecosystem. And so, once there was the massive die-off following European arrival from the disease that were, diseases that are introduced, the forest reclaimed those areas. And it's not like other parts of the world where, you know, it's preserved by a desert environment. You have the forest. The forest comes back and kind of reclaims those lands. So it's taken a while to make these discoveries. They've, they've always been there kind of in, in folklore, but with new technologies like LIDAR and, I mean, especially LIDAR, you're able to, to sense these things at scale and really understand what, what was once there. So there are certainly still a lot of you know, new discoveries being made in the Amazon, and we really don't know what we're losing both in terms of culture but also in terms of the, the biological diversity and all the things that could benefit humanity out of, out of that biological diversity. Yeah, a lot of new drugs have been discovered from those kind of rainforests, and yet uh, we, we barely managed to catalog what's there. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. You're listening to Radio EcoShock. Alex Smith here with Rhett Butler, founder and CEO of award-winning media outlet Manga Bay. There are some solutions. What can governments and citizens do to save what is left of the great Amazon rainforest? One of the most basic things is, you know, protecting the forest. And so, you know, traditionally people think of that as being, you know, national parks or reserves established by governments. But there's a growing body of research that shows that indigenous that lands that are managed by indigenous people, so like in the Amazon, these would be indigenous territories, often have better outcomes in terms of forest cover and preservation of biodiversity than even national parks. And so anything that can be done to sort of support indigenous people's, the recognition of indigenous people's land rights in the context of the Amazon and other ecosystems can be very positive for protecting the forest. So that's that's one of the big, the, the big things that... Um, at the top of the list, and others thinking about, you know, your own personal consumption and how living your daily life affects the Amazon. So there are certain products you buy that are, that may be sourced from the Amazon, and uh, you know whether it's beef or soy, things like that, and it can be really powerful for consumers to convey convey their concern about the products they they buy from the companies that produce these products. So. If you you know call you know call these companies or, or, or write to them and ask you know how are you sourcing your soy if you see that you know a company is a company's product is, is coming from Brazil if enough people do that it can send a very powerful signal to these companies that oh our our consumers are, are asking these questions and you know we need to think about how we're how we're sourcing these these commodities so that's another thing and of course supporting organizations that are working in the Amazon. You know, helping uh, strengthen indigenous indigenous rights, um, helping set up protected areas. So that's another another you know vector for for having impact in the region. Well, tell us about Manga Bay publishing a new edition of the book, A Perfect Storm in the Amazon. What's there, and is it free? Yeah, so this is a work by Tim Killeen, who's a longtime Amazon expert. He's been working in the region for you know, thirty or forty years, and so he he published this this book called The Perfect Storm in the Amazon, which is looking at the Amazon from a little bit different context than I think environmentalists or cons- conservationists typically look at the, the region. Um, so he's looking at sort of like the economic drivers of what's contributing to change in the Amazon, whether it's conservation or driving deforestation, you know, and, and these, these higher-level trends. And so 
he, in a very comprehensive way, is talking about all the things that affect the Amazon and, you know, what it means for the ecosystem. And so we are publishing his book, Three Languages, uh, for free across the Spanish, Portuguese, and English on our website over the next three years. So you can actually download the full book uh, for free, a digital version. Um, the, the content that's being published on the website is an updated version. So, you know, that, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of, of, the, of the website version. But, you know, if you, if you wanted to, to read the book ahead of time, the original version of it, then you can download it for free from, from the website. But, uh, yeah, so this is a series that's going to run for the next uh, two years uh, since we've already done one year. And um, the reception to it has been very, uh, very positive. I think for a lot of Manga Bay readers who work in conservation or, you know, are activists, it's bringing some new information that they haven't traditionally thought about when they, when they do their work uh, in the context of the Amazon. Well, another great rainforest and biological hotspot at risk is in Indonesia. Did you live there for a while, Brett? No, I've never lived in Indonesia, but I've done a lot of reporting on Indonesia over the years. And uh, Manga Bay's first non-English bureau was in Indonesia because I saw it as being a really critical place uh, for protecting biodiversity and, you know, these critical habitats. And so the reason I started Manga Bay as a nonprofit was to launch this Indonesian language news service. So Manga Bay just published a story about the increase in deforestation in Indonesia by the pulp and paper industry, despite big producers like April and APP committing to zero deforestation. If this continues to escalate, what is at stake, and are the Indonesian government and or companies likely to do anything to reverse this trend? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of nuance here. So actually, uh, Indonesia, the, the deforestation rate in Indonesia has fallen very dramatically since 2015, 2016. So the trend is, is the, the kind of the macro trend is very positive. Uh, whether it will continue, you know, is, is a bit uncertain. For one thing, there hasn't been a strong El Nino. There hadn't been a strong El Nino since 2015, 2016 in the region, and there tends to be this correlation between deforestation, forest loss, and, uh, and El Nino events. So this year was kind of the first test as to whether – you know, it's actually policy change or it's just sort of like the luck of the weather that was influencing this deforestation rate. And so far it looks like the deforestation rate will be relatively low for 2023 compared to last year. So that's a very positive trend. That said, the pulp and paper industry, you know, in the early 2010s, they made all these commitments to eliminate deforestation from the supply chain. That's Their deforestation has been creeping back up. And those companies and some of those big players, specifically APP, which is H Bold and Paper, April, have broken their commitments. Uh, APP shifted their baselines, um, allowing more deforestation in the supply chain. So, if we look specifically at that sector, deforestation for pulp and paper has increased. So, overall deforestation decreasing in Indonesia, uh, but the deforestation related to pulp and paper has been increasing. If we're looking out though in the future. Um, there are some things to be concerned about in Indonesia. So there's this push to build up a food estate. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the language that's used. I mean, basically converting large areas of forest for industrial agriculture. This has been done before. It did not work well, but it's been resurrected. So that's something that's happening. Another is uh, these biofuel mandates within Indonesia. So it's basically creating a large source of demand for palm oil. 
So, you know, it, it may not result in deforestation, but it, it, it could, you know, it, it is something to watch. So, you know, the, the recent trend has been positive, but there are some things to be concerned about. Um, Indonesia is also having an election this year, and the leading candidate has been sort of a, an outspoken critic of uh, environmental policy and protection. So, again, some things to be wary of in Indonesia, but we should be pleased with the progress, at least of the past few years in general. Well, in the El Nino of 1997-98, Indonesia became one of the world's biggest uh, greenhouse gas emitters due to fires on the peat bogs that they dried out for plantations. I wonder what those companies should be doing to mitigate that fire risk and reduce their contribution to global climate change, which affects all of us. Yeah, I mean, the answers are, <laughs> people know what to do. The question is, will they do it? So you really you need to reflood some of those areas. These peatlands are bogs, and so you know, the water table is you know, essentially near the surface. And so what they do is they reduce the water table, so they build drainage ditches to drop the water level so then they can do their acacia plantations. Um, the problem is, is that dried peat is very flammable, and so if there's an ignition source and you can have these fires that you know, burn out of control for, I mean, in some cases, decades, releasing huge amounts of carbon and then, you know, degrading the entire ecosystem and also causing air pollution at the same time. So it's pretty clear, you know, what you need to do to sort of mitigate the situation, but it just really depends on the company's commitments to, you know, actually taking action and addressing the issue. You are a powerhouse hub of information about the wild. You co-founded the journal Tropical Conservation Science in 2023, you co-authored a paper there, broadening the focus of forest conservation beyond carbon. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that was that was a review of some of the high-level trends that are happening in tropical forests. So in the past, I mean, 10 to 15 years has really been this emphasis on carbon uh, for forests. And you know, one of the one of the challenges is if you just if you reduce the value of a forest to just the carbon sequestered, you miss out on kind of the bigger picture. So some of the other ecosystem services, the biodiversity, um, things of that nature. And so this this paper talks about some of those those macro trends and kind of the implications for conservation, and then also some of the other things that need to be you know kind of brought back into the equation. So biodiversity and water. I mean, so I've long argued that the water services that are afforded by forests are really critical and are, you know, arguably harder to replace than, you know, carbon sequestration. So there's a component of that in this paper as well. So it's really a kind of an overview of these, of these broad trends in the forest conservation space. Um, and so one of those trends that we already touched on this call was this idea of broadening the constituency of who is involved with conservation. So, um, Looking, you're know, looking at the, the the data around indigenous lands and seeing that those lands uh, protect forests better than a lot of other you know types of management. So whether it's national parks or unprotected lands, and so that's been one of the the key things that I would say has emerged over the past five to ten years is recognition of uh, just how critical it is to secure land rights for indigenous people so they can you know continue to to manage these these forest lands which you know, sequester carbon and protect biodiversity. So that's, that's one of the major trends. Another one of the major trends is um, around technology. So the idea that we can see what's happening with forests better than ever, so we no longer have ignorance as an excuse for not taking action. Because we can see what's happening, even if there's cloud cover, we can use radar to penetrate the clouds and see, you know, when deforestation is happening. 
so that's been another major trend in, in this space. And so, and when I talk about broadening the constituency, the idea around that is that forests is healthy and productive ecosystems to provide all these values to humanity. So it's not just you know a habitat for tapir or jaguar. Uh, it's sequestering carbon. It's ensuring that there's rainfall in southern South America where huge amounts of agriculture is produced. When you have healthy healthy forests, you have less forest fires. So at least in the context of the tropics. So you know there there's health implications from that in terms of air quality. So all these things are important things that forests do for us. And as we get better science to explain how these systems work, we can tell the the, the story of the importance of forests to different audiences and build a broader you know coalition of people who should care about forests because they directly affect their well-being uh, personally. What is next for you, Rhett Butler? Well, I'm uh, planning to keep working on Manga Bay for a while. We have a bunch of uh, a bunch of new initiatives we're launching this year. So we're expanding our presence in Africa quite significantly, which is important because um, Africa is a, a continent where we haven't traditionally had as much uh, as much coverage. So that's the product of not having as many staff, as much of a network, contributor network there. Um, and so we're looking to, you know, address that gap and really scale coverage uh, across the continent. So that's that's one big exciting initiative. We're going to be launching a new website this year. Um, we're going to also be launching a, a, like a wire service, short form news, and then we're going to be launching a data studio to do to support more data journalism. So. Those are just a few of the major new initiatives that we'll be launching in the next uh, three to four months. So we have, uh, we're keeping busy over here. We have been speaking with the founder and CEO of Manga Bay, Rhett Butler. You can find links to all the science and news we just talked about in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. You can get real news about real life on our planet from mangabay.com. I do. Rhett, thank you for your long years of activism and spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much. It was really an honor to to be on your show. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Coming up next, we have Destabilized the Atmosphere, proof from scientist Igo Dai. Then we'll close with this question, can trees make their own weather? You're listening to EcoShock Radio. For the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Does the weather seem strange lately? Many places suffer storm after storm with freak extremes like high river flooding in winter when it should be all frozen, or tornadoes where tornadoes are not a thing. If it feels different than when you were a kid, you are not imagining it. In the journal Geophysical Research Letters, we find recent confirmation with this paper. The atmosphere has become increasingly unstable during 1979 to 2020 over the Northern Hemisphere. Here to explain is co-author Dr. Aigu Dai. He is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences at the University of Albany, Dr. Dai is well-known in his field with over 200 peer-reviewed papers. From Albany, New York, Igu Dai, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's a great opportunity. Watching network news, we find storm after storm going coast to coast across the United States. New Englanders have to duck, it seems like, every week, and the South gets violent storms. 
the UK and Ireland have been stormy with flooding. Is the weather different than it was before? Yeah, I think to uh, a large degree we are very confident that uh, there are substantial evidence to indicate the extreme events we are facing right now is certainly very different from those our parents experienced like in the 70s and the 60s. So there is a long-term change in that aspect. I think most scientists would agree. You are a senior atmospheric scientist. How should we think about the relationships between the atmosphere that you study and local weather as we experience it? Yes, uh, the atmosphere conditions uh, determines what happens at a given location. So uh, in the summer, local uh, storms tend to happen due to uh, like unstable conditions at a certain location. In the winter, the bigger systems from like North Pacific can affect the entire continental U.S. So either at a local scale or large scale, atmosphere conditions can affect weather at any particular locations. What kind of events are covered by the study in geophysical research letters? Yeah, we look at uh, we use the uh, historic radio sun data so. The weather balloons, uh, we often saw at the weather stations, they are launched twice a day, collecting uh, temperature, humidity, and other data uh, regularly, and those data are archived by the weather center over many decades. So we analyze those uh, many decades of data to get a reliable picture about how conditions have changed in the atmosphere in terms of the stability in terms of like uh, uh, how unstable or stable the atmosphere has been. Dr. Dai, is there more instability in summer versus winter? Yes, that's correct. Typically, we receive more sunlight hit the surface, so making the lower atmosphere air warmer than the upper layers. So the warmer air tends to rise, generating convection. So that's an instable condition. Did this instability ramp up gradually, or did it rise up in steps, perhaps with key events like El Nino years or other large-scale drivers? What do you think? Yeah, certain uh, events such as El Nino or other uh, ocean warming conditions could temporarily influence stability over certain locations such as uh, southwest U.S. and uh, leading to uh, either more convection, more landfall, or less rainfall under other conditions. So they do vary uh, or change from time to time. But here in the, our paper, we are talking about a, long, a long-term trend over many, over several, like 40, 50 years time period. So we think that's a very unusual change, maybe likely or at least consistent with the global warming induced by increasing CO2. And beyond stormy North America, what does your study find for changes over Europe, and what does this mean for China? Yeah, besides North America, there are other two uh, regions with relatively dense observations, Europe and uh, China, eastern China. So over both those two regions, the stability cases are becoming more frequent, uh, especially in uh, eastern China. There are more unstable 
these conditions then in recent years then in the early 80s, similarly in uh, Europe, Western Europe as well. Well, let's talk about climate change. Did you find probable connections to global warming as the cause of atmospheric instability? Well, in this observational analysis, we did not really look at the model simulations or the causes or the underlying physical causes of the change, but we do examine what lead into the instability increase, which is related to a increasing lower troposphere, lower atmospheric temperature and the humidity near the surface. And those long-term uh, temperature and the humidity trends are very consistent with model projected changes under rising greenhouse gases. So let's provide a sort of uh, indirect connection to uh, anthropogenic global warming. Even though uh, we did not nearly investigate whether the greenhouse gas forcing have actually led to those changes. Okay, let's get to how this works. For listeners who are not atmospheric scientists, you talk about increased occurrence of convective storms. What are convective storms, and what is convective available potential energy, or CAPE? Yeah, that's a jargon in, in climate science. So let's start with CAPE. So that's a, just a quantitative measure of how much a buoyancy, uh, uh, an air parcel lifted and when lifted from its original position, will experience. So, if we lift uh, air parcel from near the surface upward, the parcel may experience may becoming heavier or lighter than the surrounding air. All right. So that's the difference in the uh, density of the parcel with the surrounding air will generate a buoyancy, like almost like you put something in water. If the object is lighter than the water, you will get a push, a buoyancy, push it up, right? So in the air, it's the same. If you lift the air parcel, uh, that is denser than the surrounding air uh, in at the same altitude, then that uh, parcel will sink, will not continue to rise. But here... We are talking about the positive buoyancy. So that means when you lift the air parcel, the parcel upward, the, the parcel will experience a push or buoyancy, push it further up. So that's a, a, a case with positive cape. So basically positive buoyancy. All right. So in a convection, even in the summer, like uh, we most of the time, you see a stone. Uh, that's often uh, a convective event. When the air parcel rises and the cool and uh, uh, humidity increases, so they will form clouds, droplets, and eventually form precipitation, form rain droplets fall into the ground. So that's the, a major physical process leading to heavy rainfall in the warm, in the summer, in the warm season, over most land areas. And so that's, that's the convective stone, mostly occurring in the summer. So your group studied increasing instability of the northern atmosphere from 1979, when reliable records began, to 2020. 
Does this offer any insights into the next 40 years for the modelers? Will atmospheric stability continue to deteriorate, and, and what would that mean? Yeah, so the models can project, simulate into the future, and uh, many scientists, including our own group, have already examined, analyzed the model projections of the CAPE and uh, the stability in the atmosphere. And the model projections show that uh, the atmosphere will becoming less stable or more unstable in the coming decades, mainly due to similar changes we reported in our GIL paper. Basically, the surface warming, near surface warming, and uh, increased uh, water vapor will increase the cape, the, the positive buoyancy of a lifted air parcel and making the atmosphere less stable in the coming years with anthropogenic warming. You know, I find it interesting because you're talking about the vertical lift of air pockets. We tend to think of uh, stormy weather as strong winds blowing across the landscape, and of course, as humans, we never feel the vertical wind, but that's an important component in what you're talking about. That's correct, and uh, this is mainly becoming important in the summer season when uh, solar uh, sunlight hit the surface very strongly and it generate fast warming during the day and often lead to uh, afternoon thunderstorms. That's, those thunderstorms occur because of the unstable conditions leading to vertical motion in the atmosphere. That's the necessary conditions for uh, thunderstorm to happen, you need vertical motion to generate uh, heavy uh, intense convection and heavy precipitation. Are there enough records to do the same study for the southern hemisphere so we could know the global picture for growing instability of the atmosphere? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, in the paper, we did include uh, a limited number of uh, radio sun stations over southern hemisphere but unfortunately, most of the southern hemisphere is covered by open ocean. And certainly we cannot put a station over water, right? So there are very limited radio sun stations operating over the uh, southern hemisphere. But uh, the, the valuable or limiting uh, stations we have over the southern hemisphere land, they are consistent with the results of the northern hemisphere. But... Uh, majority of the southern hemisphere is covered by ocean, and we do not have such observations of the ocean, so that's a, a challenge. I guess insurance companies would be interested in your work. It, it indicates more of the same pounding weather extremes and more losses of property and lives. Dr. Dai, what do you think? I agree with your assessment. I hope they will find the study relevant to their risk estimate estimation because, I mean, the models have been predicting such changes, but uh, it's still comforting uh, to know that the, the model projection is consistent with available uh, data, and so the models are doing things probably right, and so we need to pay attention to such long-term trend projected by the models. Well, let's talk for a minute about some of your other work. On YouTube, you released a video map of drought potential in the, in the 21st century. How can scientists know the future of droughts? Yeah, 
Oh, interesting. You noticed my uh, earlier work on that part. So drought is another major consequence of global warming besides storms and severe weather events. So most of the climate models, they can simulate future uh, temperature, future rainfall, future soil moisture changes under certain assumptions regarding CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions. So under those projected temperature, precipitation, soil moisture changes, we can estimate the drought changes using often uh, using drought indices. So when we quantify drought, we often use so-called drought indices uh, index to uh, quantify the severity and the frequency of drought. And uh, based on those analyses, most climate model projections suggest North America and many other land areas will likely experience more severe widespread drought in the coming decades compared to the recent conditions. So that could have major impact, in particular in the southwest and the western United States, which we have experienced significant drought events in the recent decades. Also, that may not entirely due to global warming, but that uh, kind of situation is what the models are projecting for much of the south and the west of the U.S. And in the last couple of months, two of your recent co-authored papers concerned impacts of Arctic sea ice loss for both Siberian wildfires and the formation of clouds above the Arctic. Can you talk about the changes expected from disappearing sea ice in the far north? So sea ice are uh, obviously uh, very important for uh, Arctic uh, uh, ecosystems, but it also has a major impact on our climate. In the summer, sea ice can reflect sunlight very efficiently, so when you remove let the ice cover, the ocean going to absorb more sunlight, making the surface more warmer than it used to be. But in the winter, when you remove the sea ice, so in the winter, sea ice act as an insulating layer, so like a blanket, to cut off the relatively warm ocean water from the frigid Arctic air in the winter. But when you remove or melt the sea ice in the winter, you are exposing the relatively warm ocean water to the very cold air. So that, like almost you put a, a bucket of boiling water outside your a house in the in the dark night, winter night, then that water will just release all the heat energy to heat the air above. That's what happens in the Arctic when the sea ice melts. So that's causing the much faster warming in the Arctic region than in the lower latitudes. And because of the, the jet stream and the so no wind, the rest of winds we experience over middle latitudes, it depends on the north-south temperature gradients. The faster warming rate over the high latitudes will likely cause sun circulation changes, wind pattern changes in the middle latitudes. So therefore, many of scientists are concerned about the, the faster warming in the Arctic could lead to with the pattern changes in middle latitudes over North America, Eurasia.
And that's another concern from the sea ice loss-induced fast warming over the Arctic region. Yes, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay there. It's all one connected system. What are you working on now? Well, we try to uh, get some funding to continue the Arctic uh, research. Uh, right now, actually, devising a proposal to the National Science Foundation on uh, how the sea ice influence Atlantic sea surface temperature on decade or time scale. So the Atlantic sea surface ocean temperature fluctuates from decade to decade, and those temperature changes have major impact on, like, uh, North America, U.S. precipitation, landfall over Florida and east coast. But we tend to think it's mostly Atlantic Ocean process dominate that sea surface temperature fluctuations. But our recent work indicate the subpolar sea ice, which is melting uh, away, could also have a major impact on the Atlantic sea surface temperature variations. And therefore, uh, the Arctic or subpolar sea ice, we need to understand how the sea ice fluctuations and in particular sea ice loss due to global warming, whether those changes will affect the sea surface temperature in the Atlantic. And that could have potential impact not only in North America but also over Europe. That sounds important. I hope we get the answers from the University of Albany. We have been speaking with senior atmospheric scientist Aigu Dai. He is co-author of the open access paper titled The Atmosphere Has Become Increasingly Unstable During 1979 to 2020 Over the Northern Hemisphere. Find links to all the science we just talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Dr. Dai, thank you for helping our listeners on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you. Uh, uh, It's a great pleasure talking to you. I'm Alex Smith reporting. This is a climate emergency. Find out more. On the blog, ecoshock.org. As humans make roads, burn, and slash the Amazon, global warming is also ramping up the risk of losing the vast rainforests. They are loaded with unseen creatures and a rich arc of plants. Even the rainforest retreat itself can change local conditions from lush wet growth to drought and fire. Scientists are still asking, can trees make their own weather? We know the Amazon evaporates great quantities of water, and that leads to local clouds with rain. Big trees also release microparticles, which can form rain nuclei. That still leaves a problem. Unlike the great dry inland plains east of the Rocky Mountains in the north, there are wet forests east of the Andes Mountains in the south. Why? Most clouds pick up moisture from the ocean. Some scientists suggest that forests can pass rain clouds inland from the sea. Here is a selection from my interview with Dr. Douglas Scheel from the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. I see the evidence that I've gathered over time is definitely supporting this new theory saying that forests are actually active in generating low-pressure areas. And that low pressure is actually what draws in uh, winds from the ocean and draws in, therefore, moisture that allows forests 
to, I guess, water themselves is probably the simplest way of putting it. So, for example, if we look in the interior of the Amazon, we may be a couple of thousand kilometers from the ocean, but we still have a higher rainfall there in the middle of the, uh, the Amazon forest than we do right on the coast. So the actual rainfall, instead of declining as you go further inland, which you would expect, generally you would expect that as you go inland, you know, some rain falls and some uh, of that moisture runs away in rivers and some re-evaporates into the atmosphere and can be, you know, can go further again inland. Some of it will fall, some of it will go away in rivers and some of it will re-evaporate. And this is the kind of cycle we generally expect. So we would expect that the rainfall will decline. But in fact, in places like the Amazon, in the Congo Basin, over Siberia, instead of seeing this fall, we actually see that the rainfall is maintained way into the continental interiors. So to try and explain that phenomenon, it was actually quite useful to see that forests potentially have a mechanism where they can actually generate these low-pressure areas that allow these moist winds to be brought right into the interiors. Now, I, d I don't know if you really want me to go into the physics to explain what the biotic pump is, but I should say that this is down to two physicists whose work is, is basically on the physical expressions. And they had actually published this in physics journals. And I guess I've been working with them more recently to try and explore the sort of the wider implications of this idea for, uh, for forests, for landscapes, for uh, other global phenomenon, I guess. But I guess the key point is that forests have this potential to generate uh, low pressure. And that previously hadn't been fully recognized. Well, can you give us just an inkling of how forests could create low pressure? I, we can't do all the physics because it's beyond me and probably beyond some of our listeners. But, you know, just in general, how is that possible? Well, I, I guess it comes down to a, a simple kind of concept. I'll see if this is enough for you. But um, the idea would be that condensation occurs in the atmosphere whenever water vapor turns from gas, the vapor, to liquid that's or solids to drops or um, to ice. So when we actually have this water turning from the gas to the liquid or the solid, we actually have a process of a reduction in the volume of gas there or the reduction in the number of molecules in the atmosphere. And in the past, people have generally neglected this because when that happens, there's energy released from that water vapor. And people have been preoccupied with that energy because it creates a higher temperature. Uh, and they assume that happens locally. But in fact, we don't actually have evidence that that energy that's released when uh, water condenses is actually contained in that local volume. It could just be radiated away into space, for example. So they've neglected this actual difference in the number of particles, the reduction in gas molecules that happens when water vapor uh, basically disappears from vapor in, as it becomes liquid or solid. But if you actually look at what happens physically when that happens, uh, there's a diff change in the mass of the gas. There's a change in the distribution of pressures in the atmospheric column. So how the atmosphere sort of distributes its mass and pressures as you rise in that uh, in a column over the Earth's surface. And if you actually look at that and you look at what happens in a moist column of gas versus in a, in a dry column of gas, you see that inherently there will actually be an energetic process between the columns, which actually allows and drives air to circulate. So the water vapor itself becomes a source of energy that can actually accelerate air. And accelerating air is what you need to generate winds. And forests are a very, very efficient source of, of water vapor. If you actually look over an area of uh, rainforest, compare it with, for example, an equivalent area of ocean, 
the forest is actually more efficient at evaporating water. So you actually generate uh, water vapor at a greater rate over forest than over any other land surface. And it's because of that ability uh, that then you also get condensation occurring more rapidly or sooner, more frequently over forest than over any other land cover. And because condensation happens more frequently, it also generates low pressure more frequently. And because of that happens, on average, you get wind actually being brought into those forests. It's a positive feedback because, of course, when those winds come in, they're also carrying their own moisture. And when that uh, winds, they all rise eventually because they, they can't all collide and accumulate. They have to rise. And when they rise, that generates rainfall. And that's a feedback process. It's bringing in moisture from outside the system. It's such an exciting idea that trees can create the environment that they need to get the moisture that they need. And I wonder if that shares some heritage with Lovelock's Gaia theory of biological regulation of physical processes and, and the atmosphere. I guess it has some similar sounding ideas to it, but I, I, I guess we would be quite clear that it, it I mean, it, it is its own theory. <laughs> and I guess each theory has to be evaluated on, on the basis of the predictions it makes of the data you can gather to show whether it actually fits the predictions or not. So I, I guess I'm more comfortable to look at it as an independent theory in its own right. I mean, it will stand or fall as a theory based on the predictions we can make and the data we can actually bring to test those predictions. And now looking into this, I did look into the work of the two Russian scientists who you've worked with, the Viktor Gorshkov and Anastasia Makareva, and both are from the Petersburg Nuclear Physics Institute. And uh, I'm wondering how important do you think this Russian science has become to the forestry fieldwork that you do? I guess one of the reasons that I got curious about it originally is I really recognize that if they're right, and I should, you know, to lay, to lay the colors out, I really, I'm convinced they are right. I'll be, I'll be convinced until somebody gives me good evidence that they're wrong. And, you know, I've been working on this now for about 10 years, and I, I keep asking people, because many people disagree with this theory. I mean, there's lots of people who don't, you know, they, maybe they don't want it to be true. It's hard to say always why people disagree. But I'm always saying to people, if you have good evidence why it's wrong, you know, that's fine. Please share it. But I think it's such a new theory, it's hard for many people to really process and decide whether they agree with it or not. You know, we've been doing climate science for such a long time. And in a way, the models themselves are so convincing already. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every detail is correct. So you were asking how important is the theory? Well, I, I guess it's fundamentally important because if it's true, and as I say, I believe it is, it, it tells us that climate is much more vulnerable to land cover change and particularly tree loss and forest cover change than we've recognized previously. And that in many parts of the world, the climate system is fundamentally dependent on maintaining forest cover. And I guess to go beyond that, I was saying previously that there's a positive feedback that, you know, forests generate these low pressure areas and draw in moist uh, winds that generate rain to maintain that, you know, high rainfall area to maintain that low pressure. Well, because that's a positive feedback, if you degrade that feedback, if you degrade that system too much, you get to a point where it no longer works. It's like a switch. It goes from being on to off. And at that point, if you switch to off, you can actually have the feedback potentially working the other way. Now the oceans become more effective at evaporating than the, than the nearby land cover. It's no longer forest. It's no longer efficient at evaporating moisture. So now we get condensation happening more frequently over the ocean and we get more frequent low pressure over the ocean. That starts dragging 
uh, winds off the land. That brings all the moisture that's evaporated off the land back to the oceans. So instead of the winds carrying water from the ocean to the land, we now have winds carrying moisture from the land to the ocean, which is a desiccating rather than a wetting process. So you could actually imagine the sort of the Amazon basin being switched to something more like the continental interior of Australia. I mean, it sounds maybe overdramatic, but if you just look at the equations alone, they are strong enough to do this. So it's not quite as incredible as it sounds. The processes themselves, the physical mechanisms themselves, are potentially that strong. Wow. Well, you know, it did come as a possible warning flag to me that some of the discussion about this new Russian theory, especially their ideas about where winds come from, have been published in the blogs of climate deniers like Anthony Watts and climate confusers like Judith Curry. You know these two Russian scientists. Do you think they question the science of climate change? I I think that's always a really tricky question because there are so many aspects to climate change. And, and of course, I I think there's probably no one climate scientist who agrees with every aspect of every detail of, you know, what you might call the consensus opinion. But we wouldn't necessarily call those deniers. So at what level are doubts or or questions called denial? And I I think a really important point for me, because I'm trying to sidestep this, because for me, it's about the science. In the end, we are putting forward theories, and if the theories are valid, they'll stand or fall on the data. And the political relevance, in a sense, I would prefer to step aside from. Because if we're going to call climate science a science, it should be treated like a science. And that's about putting forward theories, putting forward alternative ideas, and if we can find data that supports them, looking at them further. If we find reasons not to uh, look at them further because they don't, uh, they fail to make valid predictions or whatever, then sure, you know, this, this is how science works. And let, let's forget the political blogs, because that, that really has nothing to do with what I'm interested in here. I've looked into this discussion, and my general conclusion is, is not that these two are denying that the... You know, looking into this, I ran into this one little detail that really tweaked my interest. I want to ask you about it. It says, information about how to perform the needed reactions, like, for example, productions of condensation nuclei by tree-dwelling fungi is written in the genome of four species. Can you talk to us about condensation nuclei from tree fungi? So it means that particles, and this would include uh, some fungal uh, spores and the likes, can have a huge impact on allowing water to uh, condense or freeze in a parcel of atmosphere. So what we find, for example, if people have done this over the Amazon, they, they look for particles and find that most of the particles over a forest like the Amazon appear to be of biological origin. So that includes things like fungal spores. It includes things like pollen from flowers. It includes masses of different kinds of things like bacteria and viruses and just dust that I guess comes off leaf surfaces that is somehow of a biological origin. Now, it's very complex because there's huge numbers of different things there. But when studies have been done, we find that certain of these uh, particles are definitely very active, for example, at triggering freezing or very active, uh, if they're large enough, at making water condense. So we know these things can have quite a big impact on the local climate, getting water to go from the gas phase to the liquid or the ice phase. So that has a big impact on cloud formation, and it also has a very big impact potentially on the, the processes that determine rainfall. From Norway, that was Dr. Douglas Scheel on Radio Ecoshock in 2017. You can download that full 28-minute interview, free of course, from my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. 
We are totally out of time. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org.